This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, April the 12th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. For the first reported cases of gerrymandering, you have to go back to the late 1700s. That's when Patrick Henry and his anti-federalist allies in control of the Virginia House of Delegates, they drew the boundaries of Virginia's 5th Congressional District in an unsuccessful attempt to keep James Madison out of the U.S. House of Representatives. Ahead, we explain the history of gerrymandering, what some states are doing to change the way congressional maps are drawn in the future, and the significance of a pending Supreme Court case. Our guest is Kathy Fang. She is director of the National Redistricting Effort for Common Cause. Our conversation in just a moment, but first, a movie trailer that looks at the topic, a film that features Kathy Fang. Republicans won half a million more votes than the Democrats, but the Democratic Party won 31 more seats. Too many districts today, people's vote really probably won't make a difference. There is an image of an American democracy that is open to change. This image is an illusion. Whoever runs in November is going to win, whether you like them or not. Consultants work out the districts behind closed doors. There's certainly better systems than having partisan hacks draw the line and having those put into law. We had forced driving from Washington, said the president needs this. There is no such thing as two partisan. There's only partisan. This is about politics pure. This is about who holds power. The trailer from Gerrymandering, the movie, and Kathy Fang as National Redistricting Director for Common Cause, you played a role in that movie. What's the message? What's the takeaway? Then it was really that when when people decided to look behind the curtains uh, at the processes that govern our elections and allow certain people to have a meaningful vote, that people can really make a difference. Uh, The movie was tracking the campaign of uh, 2008 where we had gathered signatures to place an initiative on the ballot in California to fundamentally change how redistricting was done. In the past, it was always the state legislature that was drawing those lines behind closed doors. They'd have a couple of dog and pony hearings, but in reality, they were doing all of the negotiations amongst themselves. And... When people started to find out about it, they decided that's fundamentally wrong. It's anti-American, and we need to bring that into the light and have a much more public and participatory process. So we placed an initiative on the ballot, and that movie tracks the campaign all the way up until Election Day when I think something of a miracle (laughs) happened, and Californians decided that it was time to actually take that power back into the hands of We the People and pass an initiative that would give redistricting to a 14-person citizens commission of regular people who applied. They came from every walk of life, every corner of California, and it was really an amazing experiment. And we should point out you have a national role now with Common Cause, but served as the executive director of Common Cause California. Who was Elbridge Jerry? <laughs> well, um, first, there is some dispute about whether his name is Jerry or Gary. Some traditionalists will say it's gerrymandering. Um, Common parlance is gerrymandering. He was the governor um, in the 1800s, and he has the unfortunate (laughs) um, fame um, of signing a bill that was uh, a very 
distorted set of maps. Um, and I understand that it involved Patrick Henry trying to squeeze out another person um, from a district. And the maps were so distorted in shape that a journalist thought that the district looked like a salamander and combined Governor Gary's name with the salamander and it came to be a gerrymander or a gerrymander. Um, and that name, ignominious as it is, has lasted for the last 200 plus years uh, into today. When we talk about redistricting that is done with ill intent, that is done to squeeze out um, a competitor or to give a, an unfair advantage to a party, it's oftentimes labeled as a gerrymander. Let's look at a couple of examples. First, in Pennsylvania, as you looked at the congressional districts a few years ago, it was a clear case of trying to carve out mm -hmm. down to the neighborhoods to help Democrats and Republicans. That changed by a state Supreme Court decision. Explain the Pennsylvania story. Right. So Pennsylvania is a state where it's largely purple. Um, Democrats and Republicans vote in fairly even numbers, but the legislature in 2001, um, as in most states, had the control of being able to draw those lines, the district lines, for the next 10 years. And so they did. Um, and 2011, they drew the lines again, and they drew it to an extreme advantage for Republicans. Uh, and when a group of citizens sued, uh, and they used the state constitution, which was an unusual challenge, uh, Pennsylvania's constitution protects the right to vote, and um, the interpretation was that when you have that right to vote, it really means that you ought to have a choice on the ballot. You ought to have uh, the ability to have uh, representatives from each party meaningfully be able to run and potentially win people's votes. And the court said the lines have been drawn in such a distorted way that it violates the state, state's constitution, and it ordered those lines to be redrawn. They first didn't have any choice, and the court, Supreme Court of, of Pennsylvania ordered the legislature to redraw the lines. And essentially, the legislature had a bit of a toddler's fit and folded their arms and said, no, we refuse. Uh, and so then the court said, all right, fine, we'll appoint a special master's to do it. And uh, Nate Persley from Stanford University came out, looked at all of the data and said, okay, let's draw it this way. And so Pennsylvania has had new elections in 2018 under those lines. And we've seen a change in Pennsylvania's delegation in part because uh, it truly represents where people uh, wanted to cast their ballot and reflects their choice of candidates. Another example is Iowa with five congressional districts. And as you look at that map, very clean lines, mm -hmm. county by county. Yeah. Iowa took on a whole different approach, which is that they decided let's uh, entrust a group of demographers who are employed by the state to draw the first draft. Uh, and so those demographers look at the changes in population, try to make sure that each district is equal in population. They're familiar with the geography of the state and trying to make, it, make sure that you know cities are not torn into pieces or towns are kind of grouped together in ways that are logical and make sense uh, from the perspective of making sure that voters are able to elect people who share their interests and represent them. They put that first draft out to the legislature, and the legislature basically gets to vote up or down on it, yes or no. And time and time again, the legislature has said, hey, that's a pretty good job, and it saves us the trouble of having to argue with each other. So we'll vote yes. Um, and that's how Iowa has done it for a couple of decades. When people talk about the lack of bipartisanship in Washington, they say D.C. is broken. They mm -hmm. often point to two things. First of all, the money in politics. And the second, 
redistricting because they claim that there is not an incentive for the two parties to come together when a member of Congress is more worried about a primary challenge versus a general election. So how does that go to the core of what you're dealing with? Right. There is a particularly pernicious type of redistricting uh, that is called partisan gerrymandering, where the controlling party of that state legislature decides that they're going to try to orchestrate the lines, design the lines in such a way that they give themselves a very severe advantage. And what that ends up doing is, in many states, it's attempting to pack one party's uh, voters into as few districts as possible. Uh, So they're super packed into, let's use North Carolina as an example. Uh, The congressional delegation, Democrats are super packed into three different districts. And then Republicans are spread out through the rest of the ten. Now, North Carolina is interesting because it's, again, a purple state, a state that tends to vote about 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. But here, because they've super-packed Democrats into three different districts, those districts are hyper-democratic, and then the rest of them are so staunchly Republican that uh, really then the only election that matters, because the generals no longer matter, there's no competition between Democrats and Republicans Uh, Between them, the only competition is between Republicans and Republicans in those 10 Republican districts and Democrats and Democrats in the three Democratic districts. And so it tends to be that the base will elect people who lean in their direction uh, further to the right or further to the left. When you have that multiplied by state after state where this kind of partisan gerrymandering has happened, we end up with a congressional delegation altogether that is heavily right and that will not talk to the heavily left. And there is no in-between now to be able to find compromises, move important pieces of legislation, or even to talk across the aisle. And that's the challenge, is that when our Congress is fundamentally broken because people are not talking to each other, they're not getting the nation's business done, and they're not representing us in Washington, D.C. And Kathy Feng, in some cases, these congressional districts divided literally down the middle of a street. So one side could be one member of Congress, the other side could be another, to make sure that they have enough Democratic or Republican votes uh, to carve out that district. Right. In North Carolina, instance after instance of that happened. And Greensboro is an example of a particularly um, striking example, where the city of Greensboro is split right down the middle. It just so happens that there is the largest uh, historically black university North Carolina A&T, and it is also split right down the middle. And you can see that there are dorms on one side and dorms on another, and those students have no ability to really elect a single congressperson of their choice, nor does the city of, of Greensboro. And we see the same thing happening in, in cities like Asheville, Fayetteville. You go up and down the country, there are neighborhoods and cities that are split down the middle, and sometimes it is with very intentional Uh, decisions because it is taking a potentially um, viable constituency, splitting them into two in order to ensure that they cannot elect a candidate of their choice. This issue is now before the U.S. Supreme Court and Common Cause is playing a key role in this. I want to let you listen to what Justice Brett Kavanaugh said during oral arguments last month. I I took some of your argument in the briefs and the amicus briefs to be uh, that Extreme partisan gerrymandering is a real problem for our democracy, and I'm not going to dispute that, and that the court uh, 
even though it might be a problem to get involved in all these cases, should, in essence, recognize the emergency situation uh, from your perspective. Uh, but what about, to pick up on something Justice Gorsuch said earlier, that there is a fair amount of activity going on in the states on redistricting and attention in Congress and in state Supreme Courts? In other words, have we reached the moment, even though it would be a have we really reached the moment, even though it would be a, a big uh, lift for this court to get involved, where the other actors can't do it? How would you respond to that question? I think that there is a lot of energy in the states to try to reform redistricting. But ultimately, in more than half of the states, that power is held by state legislatures. And th- as our attorney said, those state legislatures will not give up power. Um, it will be over their dead bodies that they'll surrender that. And so it is absolutely imperative that the Supreme Court uh, find a way to step in to find partisan gerrymandering unconstitutional because, as a matter of fact, that power cannot be uh, changed unless the state legislatures are forced to do so by the, by the courts. So the natural follow-up to that point, can you take the politics out of congressional redistricting? I don't think that our goal is to take politics out of redistricting. I do think that it's natural for uh, people to want to express uh, who they want to represent them um, through the process of participating in elections, and that's that's political. It's inherently you're going to make a choice, uh, this candidate or that, um, this party or that. But I do think that we can bring fairness into the process, and that means uh, for the the Supreme Court, if it decides to make a decision, that they can guard the edges and say, you know, when you draw lines like this, it's so extreme. It is so skewed from where regular citizens are that those are out of bounds. And they can declare when something's out of bounds and call the the yellow flag or even the red flag and say that we need to review that. In states where there is an initiative process or occasionally a state legislature that sees that there is a right and a wrong and they want to do right by people, they can actually create rules to create an alternative process, and that could be creating a very strict set of criteria. It could be bringing in greater transparency, or the ideal situation is to hand that power over to a group of people who don't have an inherent self-interest built into how they're going to draw those lines, and they can actually take testimony from everyday people and draw the lines fairly. You were in the courtroom during oral arguments, and as you heard Justice Brett Kavanaugh, there seemed to be a real hesitancy for the high court to get involved in this. What was your takeaway? There has inherently always been a carefulness about wanting to step into what they call the political thicket, because they're worried that if they are going to constantly be called on to police every single dispute between partisans or incumbents about how the lines are drawn, that it will will be a never-ending process and they will be sucked into deliberating over every single level of redistricting. But the reality is that we also saw Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, the four liberal justices say time and time again that partisan gerrymandering is a serious problem. Uh, even Justice Kavanaugh in that uh, clip that we just heard talks about how we can't even dispute that question. Let's just set that aside. It's, it is undisputed that this is a serious problem. Which is a good point from Which your standpoint. Which is a good point, right, because it's moving on to the question of how do we solve it and can we solve it. And a lot of his questions were really centered on 
what if we tried this versus that? And, um, you know, Gorsuch brought up a lot of um, arguments that there are reforms that are happening in a lot of states. In 2018, there were five states that just passed initiatives to change the redistricting process. Those included Michigan, Missouri, Utah, Colorado, and Ohio. But And he said, so does that mean that we don't need to do anything? The Supreme Court doesn't need to act. Courts don't need to step into this. And the answer was, time and time again, unfortunately, there are only a few states that have an initiative process. And so you really do need to have a single standard that all states can abide by. And if we care about our democracy and we don't want to descend into an entirely dysfunctional set of state legislatures and Congress, if we don't want this to become Putin's Russia, where the majority party or the ruling party gets to carve up and take away the ability to vote from the minority party or the dissenters, then we really need to guard our democracy zealously. And I think that you started to hear those kinds of concerns coming through from justices of every part of that political spectrum. And when they were tackling how they could measure what a fair map was, they started to think about Is it about proportional representation? Is it about policing the extremes? Is it about looking at where there is clear intent to disrupt the system? And those are all things that courts have tackled in the past. When you think about, you know, everything from murder cases to police abuse to uh, corporate wrongdoing, the question of intent, the question of whether or not it's so extreme, uh, those are all in the spectrum of what we do in our legal system. And I think for that reason, the Supreme Court is starting to move towards finding a manageable standard. Let me remind our listeners that we're talking with Kathy Thang. She is the National Redistricting Director for Common Cause. We don't know what the Supreme Court will decide, but what questions will they consider? I think that they are going to look at two different cases that came before them, right? One came out of Maryland, where the Democrats did the gerrymandering, and one came out of North Carolina, where the Republicans did the gerrymandering. So the complaints are bipartisan. The complaints are bipartisan. And not only that, but I think it's worth noting that in the Maryland case, this is actually the backyard of several of the Supreme Court justices. And some of the questions that were asked by Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts really get to... Um, knowing this part of the state like the back of their hand, right? They they know the freeways that run through it. They understand why it's so odd that these particular communities or counties would have been strung together. Chief Justice Roberts railed against, you know, the fact that suburban Maryland is nothing like the uh, northern part that's much more rural and closer to West Virginia. And he said, you know, hobby farms are not the same as, you know, real farms. And that kind of intimacy is also then hopefully something that may drive the justices to say, this is something that is unfair and it needs to be changed. Now, questions that they're going to ask, they're going to say, how do we establish what the intent of the legislature is uh, when it was drawing those lines? Was it truly malicious or was it just by coincidence that the lines ended up getting drawn that way? What kind of evidence can be shown, Um, and do we fall back on mathematical models, or do we show uh, what was presented in these two cases, which was simulations of thousands and thousands of alternative maps that followed uh, the legitimate traditional redistricting criteria but still didn't end up with the partisan skew that the legislatures achieved in their maps? Do we look at other things? Um, Is there a rational basis for the legislatures drawing those lines that way? And 
we think that those are actually all follow a kind of pattern of questioning that happens in all voting rights cases and all redistricting cases. So as a point of um, practice, the Supreme Court actually has a fairly manageable standard in front of it. It just needs to decide if this problem is serious enough that it wants to tackle it. And we think that the pairing of the Maryland case with the North Carolina case is exactly the perfect pairing for them to think about this case as something that if they come up with a rule, it's going to apply evenly for Democrats, Republicans, and all stripes in between. So you think it is possible to have a national standard? I'm a little Pollyannish. I'm just going to admit that. I mean, you don't get into this business of thinking that you can tackle redistricting, even in a state like California, <laughs> against the majority party, if you don't think that sometimes uh, th- there is a unicorn out there and it's worth looking for. So, yes, I am a unicorn hunter, and I do believe that today, <laughs> uh, this June, we're, we're going to find our unicorn. Let me bring it back to your home state of California, former governor actor Arnold Schwarzenegger. He has been front and center on this issue. And following oral arguments, he spoke to reporters outside the Supreme Court. It is a uh, national scandal of what's going on with the gerrymandering and the way our politicians draw the district lines. And both of the parties, I've said earlier, are doing it. Democrats are gerrymandering, Republicans are gerrymandering. And really, it is a disservice to the people. It is a not a, a representative government, but is a misrepresentative government. They, they carve out for the Democrats a district, and therefore the Democrats have to be way to the left in order to win. And the Republicans carve out their district so that you have to be way to the right in order to win. And so they come here to Washington to represent the people. They're way to the right and way to the left, but mo- the majority of people in America are more in the center. So that's why I say it's misrepresentation. And the people, really, is the First Amendment issue because the people, their voices are not being heard. As a matter of fact, when they draw the district lines and they fix the districts, they throw out millions and millions of votes. So those people are never being heard. So this is why it is very important that we're going to ask the court to intervene here and to do something about it. For 200 years, this has been going on where the legislators draw the district lines to protect their jobs, and to go and to kind of like make sure that they're locked in there and that no one can challenge them. And that means, of course, there's no competition and that means there's no performance. And that's why we see no performance here in Washington. The answer really is, is to deal with the redistricting uh, and with the, with the gerrymandering issue and to terminate gerrymandering once and for all. Former California governor, Republican Arnold Schwarzenegger and Kathy Fang, we should point out he was joined by Democratic former Attorney General Eric Holder. Yes. It was the first time that they were meeting, and, you know, it was really um, a realization that this is a problem that exists for Democrats and Republicans, and the only way that we're going to solve this problem is by working together, uh, finding those unusual alliances, as we did in California and Colorado and Ohio and Michigan. Like every state where there has been change, it has been because Democrats and Republicans, everyday people come together and say, this is a thing that we need to address together if we're going to rebuild a country where we can have conversations again and where our policymakers that we ultimately elect to represent us can actually work in a functional way in our legislatures and our Congress. I have two stories to share, if you don't mind. Um, You know, one is before California adopted the Independent Redistricting Commission, Uh, We went around the state and talked to a lot of people and, you know, really tried to understand how this process of gerrymandering affects people. 
And uh, I talked to a number of people from the community of Watts. It's a largely traditionally African-American and largely Latino community in South L.A. And they had been hit by this very freakish uh, hailstorm. We don't get that in Southern California, but but it hit Watts. And it not only um, broke pipes, it flooded out the community. And um, a lot of houses had to be rebuilt. And people were displaced for weeks on end. And a lot of residents decided that they needed to go to their state legislators and their congressional member to try to seek some kind of help, federal emergency assistance. And as they went from congressperson to congressperson's office, they were told, you're not really in our district. And I actually talked to a staffer who was in one of those congressional offices, and he remembered vividly that when that group of residents from Watts came to their office, they did a calculation of the district and how many people from Watts were actually in their district. And they said, it's only 100, so we can't really give them. That's not our worry. They're not people that we represent. And because that community, that small community, was split into three different pieces, they were ping-ponged from one office to another, never to find representation. And it took a lot of intervention from the outside to finally push the governor to declare a a national emergency and bring help in. Now, skip forward to after 2012, when the new lines were in place, and for the first time, elections had to be held. And there were two incumbents in uh, part of Los Angeles, it's further north in uh, San Fernando Valley, who had been placed into the same district for the first time. And residents there said, you know, they, they, they love their congressional members, but they'd never seen them in decades and decades. It'd been a while. But this year, in 2012, when the elections were happening, they said they'd never seen these two congressional members so much at every single baseball game, every bat mitzvah. They were handing out flyers. They were talking to constituents. They were listening. They could go to their uh, neighborhood community center or to a town hall and really hear the debate of ideas. And it was exciting for a lot of residents to finally have the ability to touch and connect with their potential uh, uh, representative to, to make a hard decision about which candidate to choose. Now, they ultimately chose Brad Sherman, um, and that was a choice of the people. He was voted in overwhelmingly because he really made an effort to be present in everybody's living rooms and baseball games. And I think that that's the difference, the idea that we want to bring those representatives back to our constituents to listen and to hear us. And we, when people say we'd like to have these practical solutions to whatever the issues of the day are, whether that's about uh, gun control or uh, women's safety or the environment or you name it, the issues that people care about, that there is a connection between what people want and what those candidates ultimately bring when they are elected to Washington, D.C. So what I'm hearing from you is that this is not only a necessary incentive, but also vital to have bipartisanship. I think that for the future of our country, we need to establish a functional government. And that starts with Democrats and Republicans and all stripes in between uh, actually talking to each other. And part of that is that in every Americans' daily lives, we have members of our family who are from different parties. And we figure it out, right? You have hard conversations over dinner. Sometimes they're a little touchy. Sometimes you still have to love them and drive them to the airport as you say goodbye to them. And thankfully, they don't have to 
come back until next year, Thanksgiving. That's another podcast That's for another, another day. podcast. <laughs> but the reality is that we all live with that, right? That nobody doesn't Absolutely. have different people from different parts of the political spectrum in your family, but you figure out how to live them, live with them because you love them. You grew up with them. You You know who they are as people. In Congress, we don't have that anymore. We have people who are staunchly on each side. They're punished if they cross the aisle. They're punished if they're they're made fun of. You know, if if they uh, try to have some type of reasonable compromise. But I think constituents are saying we well, just want you to go to office and really find reasonable uh, solutions to the problems that we're asking you to represent us on. And the only way to do that is to bring that bipartisanship back. So you have that in your family as well. <laughs> Who doesn't? But yes, I do. (laughs) One final point, because if our listeners go to your website, commoncause.org, you say that states alone cannot fix it. Mm -hmm. Explain that point. I think that there is a lot of energy in the states. And don't get me wrong, I come from California, and we've done a lot in the state of California to pass initiatives and to pass laws. But ultimately, most states do not have an initiative process, and most state legislatures will not give up the power on their own. And so the only way to achieve change across the board is to either have courts intervene and to have a single standard that is set by our U.S. Constitution and enforced by our courts, uh, or to have Congress act. And at this point, it is a chicken and egg situation where the dysfunction because of gerrymandering means that Congress can't act because they can't get together on any issue, and they certainly can't get together on an issue as as hard as trying to fix reform redistricting. And so at this point, our only hope is that Supreme Court will step in and say, okay, for now, let's at least guard the edges and make sure that we don't go totally off the rails. Um, and then when, if, if we can bring some sanity back into the process of redistricting, maybe that also means that Uh, The outer edges are no longer as extreme. We have some people who are willing to work with each other, and Congress can get to business next time around that they're elected. And you are cautiously optimistic, positive? Where would you gauge your assessment? I am um, unreasonably, but um, very hopefully optimistic. Kathy Fang, who is a former executive director of Common Cause in California, now the national redistricting director for that organization, Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app online at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.